Uh, my name is Justin Crow. I'm one of the pastors here at Mission Church. Uh, before I even start, I'm going to pray again because I'm in one of those weird places where um, everyone here probably knows that I'm pretty much what's on this page is what I'm going to say. Like that's, that's my MO here. Well, this morning God was like, oh, hey, did you forget about this thing? And I was like, yeah, no, I did. I uh, forgot about that thing that I should have thought of a week ago. So I'm just going to pray that it doesn't get all jumbled up and make no sense today whatsoever. So if you would, just pray with me one more time. This will be short, I promise. But just uh, bear with me. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this day. I pray today more than uh, any other day because of this particular issue uh, of jumbled thoughts. That you would speak through me. That you would hide me behind your hand. Remove me from the equation altogether. Uh, may this be about you. May this be about your, uh, your son, your spirit, and your word. We love you and we thank you. And it's in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're continuing through 2 Timothy. Uh, just like we said last week, this letter builds upon itself. So each week, each paragraph kind of builds upon the previous paragraph. That is how you would write a letter if you were writing one as well. So just kind of keep in mind the headings are not there. The, the chapter breaks and the, the verse numbers and all of those are not there. And we'll kind of try to get in the thought of the original recipient. as just one flowing thought. So to recap, we see Paul tell Timothy a couple of weeks ago to laser focus on the gospel and the teaching of it to faithful men who will then teach it to faithful men who will then teach it to faithful men. Have a laser focus on this. And all of this is a means of evangelism, of sharing the gospel, of not getting distracted by what he calls civilian pursuits, by things that don't really matter, getting our minds and our hearts and our attention off of the mission of God to make disciples of all nations. Then he says, as you do this, don't get wrapped up in yourself. Don't get wrapped up in who you are, or who's with you. Remember Jesus always, daily, hourly. Just keep remembering him. He is the author and perfecter of your faith. He is the one that brings growth. He is the one that sees, that sees results through to the end. He is alive. He is king. He will save. Remember him. And he ends that by quoting some, at the time, some well-known uh, statements about Jesus and his faithfulness unto himself. And then immediately this week, we see a reference back to all of those. And it says, remind them of these things. These things being what he's just talked about in the previous parts of the letter. Again, it's building upon itself. He's not saying, remember these things I said to you in some other letter. Remember these things that I said to you a year ago. Remember that conversation we had after church that one day? No, remember these things that I just wrote to you about. Remind them of the centrality of the gospel. Remind them that it is Jesus who brings growth. Remind them that while we are called to be obedient, Jesus is faithful even when we are not. Even when we are faithful but do a bad job, even when we are completely and utterly disobedient, Jesus is faithful to himself. So the first question then is that. What are these things? We just talked about that. The second question is who is them? Remind them of these things. It would seem as he references the hearers of them here at the end of that verse that Paul has teachers, pastors in mind, elders other people that are in leadership in the church. So he's telling Timothy as kind of his disciple or his mentor, Timothy, your other leadership in the church that are going to be teaching and telling people things about Scripture, remind them of these things as well. Don't just keep this to yourself. Remind them as a reminder of letting 
peripheral things become primary and primary things becoming peripheral. Don't do that. Don't allow them to do that. Keep your mind set on these things. But then Paul takes it a step further. There's a comma there. And then it says, and charge them before God. Now this goes beyond a simple reminder. This is not, hey, if you get around to it, try to remember these things. No, no, no. This is charge them before God Almighty. May He be the one holding them accountable to whether they remember and remind themselves of these things or not. He says, charge them before God to be reminded to keep the gospel central and to not quarrel over words and silly things that do not matter. See, quarreling over irrelevant things is not only a waste of time, it accomplishes nothing, but it actually has negative effects. It ruins the hearers. It's not just this neutral thing that maybe you should or shouldn't do that has no effect at all. No, it has negative effects. It can cause people that hear it to go in a wayward direction. Now, this does not mean that some things are not worth parsing out Having discussions over this does not mean that all debate is bad. That's not what Paul is saying here. This does not mean that the true and right meaning of words is not important. Absolutely it is. However, too many times, these debates simply become word wars, which is exactly what the original language, that word for quarrel, that's really what it means. Word wars. Do not engage in these word wars, which in the which is what Paul is telling him to avoid here. Don't get caught up in that. Paul is saying, do not engage in these word words where nothing gets accomplished in route to our overall mission. If it has something to do with our overall mission, yes, it has to be parsed out. It has to be discussed. But if it's not, if it's not with our overall mission of going to the nations, if it's not with our overall message, the gospel, then maybe you just let it go. Maybe you just let it go, let it settle, if you need to have a conversation, have it. But don't get engaged in these word wars because too many times, and we see it today especially, this is just egotistical puffing up. Well, I know more than you do. Or I know what the word this word means, and you don't know what this word means. They're more geared towards winning an argument than winning a soul. They're more geared at making someone feel superior or smarter or more holy because they know all of these words in the original Greek. Nothing wrong with knowing the original Greek. Nothing wrong with knowing any of these things. But I cannot tell you how many times, and it was always seminary students, seemingly, with their first beard. I'm still waiting for mine. But the seminary students who have gotten you know, just enough knowledge to really think I am smart enough to change the world. And maybe they are. I'm not. But maybe they are. But they say things, like reading on message boards in, in my classes and hearing people discuss things that I was like, at that time, I was like, mm, I don't know what they're talking about. But like, since we are all instilled with the Imago Dei, we can also assume that since God is eternal, the view of the annihilationists cannot be reconciled with the biblical teaching of the eternality of our souls. After the eschaton and the perusia of Christ, whether our souls reside in paradise or Sheol. You know what that just said? Since we have the image of God, God lives forever, so do we, whether we're in heaven or hell. Y'all. Like, but people get caught up in this flowery language and I know what those words mean and I may have not even gotten all that right myself but if you come talk to me about that you're doing exactly what you should not be doing based on the scripture so if I did get it wrong let it go alright you see though how these debates they do nothing of merit right whether I use the word perusion the right 
context or what it nothing of merit what we do need to know since we have the image of god that our souls do live forever and they will reside in heaven or they will reside in hell and that's what sends us out to go share the gospel with the nations that matters but when people hear christians argue over silly things sometimes very heatedly over silly issues that are not close-handed that are not ultimate it ruins the primary message. It distorts the primary message. Again, I am not, before anybody thinks that I am, I am not saying it's bad to be educated. Be educated to the highest level that you want and can. Absolutely. Know these things. Know the Bible. Know history. Know theology. Know church history. Know all of these things. But never, never, never at the expense of knowing God. Do not substitute those things and think, well, this is more important than studying just God's Word. Because then you are making non-primary things primary. You are making non-close-handed issues close-handed, and it distorts the message and it ruins the hearers. We see here also built into this warning, though, about word wars, the idea that people were also trying to sneak in doctrine that wasn't really sound. They're trying to kind of add to their... They're starting with the, the, with the premise that's right. They're starting with words that are right. And then they, they try to take a caveat here and add it on that is not really there. We see warnings like this to avoid people like this, to avoid teachings like this, to know the word well enough to recognize when they're happening. That's key. We see warnings like this even in the previous letter, 1 Timothy 6, uh, 2 through 6. Teach and urge these things. Again, he's referencing something in 1 Timothy, but talking about the gospel. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up, puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy, for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. That is a stern warning. That is not a, hey, if you don't mind, could you maybe not say those things? No, it is. You call these people out. This, this right here, what Paul is warning about, this keeps the gospel in the back seat. This leads to dissensions, controversy, division, quarrels. It elevates peop some people. It denigrates other people. In other words, it does no good and actually has negative effects within the church. People that are not within the church all of the people that are going to hear it, know about it, see it, play, see it play out, are going to, it is going to have negative effects upon them. Paul has something to say about that in the next book, Titus 3, verses 10 to 11. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice. So go to him with these words from 1 Timothy. Hey man, you're stirring up divisions, quarrels, da, 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 da. Don't do that. Two times. Have nothing more to do with him knowing that such a person, person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Now you see why Paul says charge them before God not to do this? Because it's not a small matter. This is not just something that can be glossed over. Paul says charge them before God not to engage in these word wars because they do no good. They have negative effects and it is distorting our message and our mission. Pay careful attention to this because it is a grave issue. Jesus himself in Matthew 12, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. 
I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. I'm terrified right now. Because most of the words I say outside of preaching are usually careless. They're about sports, or they're a joke, or they're silly things. And I'm not saying we can't be funny. I'm not saying we can't talk about sports. I'm not saying we can't have those debates and conversations. But it makes me realize how many of my words are careless words. And they may not be doing harm, but are they really doing any good? But you will be given account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Words do matter. Romans 10 will tell us that we are saved by what we confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts. So if we are confessing false doctrine, that means we are automatically believing false doctrine and that means we are doomed. We are condemned. We are damned. We are in trouble. Words matter. But this means that as we are discussing words, as we are using words to share our message with lost people and sharing the gospel with saved people who need reminding of it, this means that we should A, try, not try to puff ourselves up with fancy language and elevate ourselves with knowledge. Get the, get the knowledge. Get it. Don't care, but use it for God's glory. Or B, we should never, 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 never try to add or take away from the truth of God's word in order to serve some other ulterior purpose, especially not a self-serving one but not a cultural one or any other type. Do not add or take away from God's word. As soon, the moment we begin viewing anything other than God's word as the harbinger of complete and utter truth, we are already on a path to destruction. This is where we will begin to elevate enlightenment over biblical truth or biblical inspiration. We will begin to elevate correction over inerrancy of God's word. We will begin to elevate feelings over truth. May this never be said of Mission Church, its pastors, or its people. We elevate God's word above all because it is true and it is the only real, genuine truth. Now, remind people of the centrality of the gospel. Mission Church has one sermon. We joke about this all the time, but we use it through many lens, many texts. Because we want to remind you every single week of the gospel, of Jesus. Why? Because we forget it every single week. We forget that that's really how we are saved. We forget about grace. We forget about forgiveness, whether it's for ourselves or for the people that have wronged us that week. We forget to extend it based upon what we have been given in Christ. We want to remind you of the gospel every week because this book, with 66 smaller books, 40 writers over about 1,500 years of writing tell one cohesive, true story about one dude, and his name is Jesus. We want you to be reminded of that. We want you to be reminded of one story of God's plan to glorify himself through the sending of his son to chase down and pursue the people that he had chosen from foundations of, before the foundations of the world, and he succeeds in it because he saves every last one of them. That's the story you hold in your hands this morning. Whether it's an iPad, whether it's a phone, whether it's an actual book. I know those are getting outdated, but if either way, that is the truth you hold in your hands. That is why we preach Jesus weekly. That is why we proclaim the gospel weekly. The gospel saves and the gospel sanctifies. However, that is also why we go straight through books of the Bible. So we have to look at texts that allow the Holy Spirit to work through us in the mining of God's truth because it points to Jesus from different angles. 
And it shows us through different days of our lives, through and all my children, the different days and different things that we do through our lives that Jesus is central. Jesus matters. The gospel matters. It points to Jesus from all words of Scripture. That is why we do not shy away from tough topics, tough verses, even verses that are debatable. We'll give you both sides of the debate, and we want you to go study that. We, want, we don't want to just give you the answer. We want you to go look at it because some of these things, you can think one and we can think the other. That's okay. We don't have to engage in word wars to figure out who's right and who's smarter or any of those things. I've heard it described that we want to teach in a way that is perfectly understandable to a non-Christian that walks in but also have something on a shelf that a believer has to reach for and really stretch their mind and not just spoon feed an easy task or an easy topic and just say well here it is just go but we want you to reach for it and to study God's word on your own we want the gospel to be central but not elementary Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians 3 I fed you with milk not solid food for you are not ready for it we want as your pastors to be able to feed you with solid food we want every person in here and there are young people in here today Every person, I'm not delineating age, every person in here to be biblically literate and to continue growing in your knowledge of the gospel, of God's word. We want a, a church full of biblical scholars. We want people to know if we get something wrong. If we speak something wrong from the pulpit, lovingly and respectfully, you can come talk to us. We want you to do that. We try not to. We're not perfect. We are not Jesus. But we should all, every one of us, we should all want to gain more knowledge without becoming puffed up or conceited, without making it more about the speaker than the one spoken about. It's all about Jesus. We want it to be all about Jesus, but we want to get it right. It does matter. And I've confessed to you guys my struggle with this every week I preach. I have to pray and pray and pray and pray. Even while we're singing, I have to pray, God, make this about you and not me. Because I am concerned about myself far too much. Please make this more about you than it is about me. But that sin issue that I struggle and fight with should not cripple my desire to know more of his word, to know more of Jesus, to pray the Holy Spirit would move in my heart and, and mind more to be more bold about sharing the gospel and then pray that I am effective in sharing the gospel, not for my glory, for God's glory. Because he's the one that makes them believe it no matter how good I am at sharing it anyway. All of these things are exactly what Paul wrote to Timothy when he told him to have a single mindedness about the gospel, all the while keeping Christ at the forefront. Gain knowledge so you can share the gospel, so you can answer tough questions from non-believers. Gain knowledge for God's ultimate glory. Do not get carried away in these vain pursuits or stroking your own ego or getting knowledge for just knowledge's sake. You ever run into a person that just knows something about everything and you're like, why do you know all of it? I mean, it's cool, I guess, but why do you know all of it? May we know God's word for God's glory. But in contrast to that, Paul says, don't be like this, so don't get caught up in all of this stuff, but do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed rightly handling the word of truth. Paul here is saying that the opposite of those who are engaged in these quarrels and these word wars are those who work 
hard and rightly to handle the word of God well. This is a picture of a man that does not need to be ashamed because he's handling the truth correctly. He is speaking the truth correctly. He's not getting engaged in these word wars. He's also not adding or taking away or changing God's message. He is handling it rightly. This is a man who is studying God's word for God's glory. This is a man who is serving for God's glory. This man who is teaching and preaching for God's glory all to point to Jesus, not to point to himself. That man has nothing to be ashamed of if and only if he handles the word of God rightly. And this is where we've got to be careful not to let culture dictate what the Bible actually says. What is true, what is right, what is biblical. Handling God's word means two things. Know it, we just talked about that some, and do it. Be hearers and doers. James 1.22, be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. A hearer, I'm paraphrasing, A hearer looks in the mirror and goes, hey, that's what I look like, and then walks away and forgets. They don't correct any of the stuff that's going on with their face. A doer goes, oh, man, I got a smudge or whatever. Be doers of the word. Don't just hear the word and go, oh, that sounds great. But be hearers and doers. Now, really quickly, I never want to take a verse of Scripture out of context and overextend it to something that it does not technically apply to. Context is always key. And yes, this seems to be in Timothy written primarily to elders and teachers of the word. Primarily. Remind them, Timothy. Remind your leadership, Timothy. There's no way to 100% know that for sure. But however, taking the whole counsel of God's word together, we know that it is a call to believers to be biblically literate. So it may not be exactly in this text that he's talking to the whole congregation as much as the leadership of the congregation. But Hebrews 5.12 says... For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. This is clearly not written to teachers, because he's rebuking them for not being teachers yet. So we know that every word, or I'm sorry, the very word that we should be versed in tells us to be versed in the word. Does that make sense? I'm sorry, because your brain works like mine. The Bible itself tells us to know the Bible, if that helps. The writer of Hebrews goes on to say that we need to leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. There's no way you can twist that into Paul saying knowledge is bad, or education is bad, or knowing things is bad. There's no way to twist that. It does not mean anything here about being bad that you know things. But it does mean that there's nothing needed outside of Jesus for salvation. And yet, he's telling us to know things outside of, not outside of Jesus, but outside of the basic, Jesus died for me. Know the Word. Know God's Word. Know what He is saying in other Scriptures. Know that the Old Testament points to Jesus, even though the name Jesus ain't in the Old Testament. Know all of these things. Be clear about that. We should always want to know Christ more through His Word. We should always want to be more filled with the Spirit through His Word. The only way to do that, prayer and Bible reading, and then gathering together, talking about it. Not engaging in word wars, but absolutely having a conversation. Man, I was reading in Revelation this week, or I was reading in Exodus this week, and you know what really stood out to me? Oh, really? I read that last year, and it stood out, this stood out to me. That's great. That's not a word war. That is encouraging us to be on mission. That is encouraging us to know God's word more. See, word work 
is hard work. Knowing it's is hard enough by itself. We've all met the guy that just knows the word, but then you look at his life and you're like, do you know the word? But they know what to say. Uh, there was an article on the Gospel Coalition this week that said, are Bible quoters uh, displacing Bible knowers or something like that? Meaning, they can quote scripture all day long. They don't really know what the Bible says. They don't really know what it says about daily life and living. Knowing is hard enough. Doing makes it even harder. But we have to be knowers, hearers, and doers. Just like the farmer from the example a couple weeks ago, we should be hard workers in the Word. Farming is hard work. Word work is hard work. We must know it and live it. The Christian Standard Version, which is, I don't know, probably my second favorite behind the ESV, says be diligent. So the ESV says do your best to present yourself. The H, whatever, HSCB or HCSB. Thank you. The diligence is not an easy task. It says be diligent. Diligence is needed when something does not come natural to us. We're not diligent when something is just really easy. We just go do that. Diligence is required when things are difficult, when things are not readily, readily available or readily visible. When we don't see Jesus jumping out of the page, we mine for it. We look into it and we find where Jesus is jumping off the page and we just missed it the first time through, like I did the entire week this week. Rightly handling the Word of God means putting in the time and the effort to get every drop of what the Word is saying and then going away from your mirror and doing it and living it and saying to people the gospel, speaking the gospel to people. This means not winging it if you're teaching or preaching, making it up as you go along, not using the excuse. I've heard this excuse. I'm just going to let the Holy Spirit speak to me because the Bible says that the Holy Spirit will give you what to say when it's time to speak, which is true. The Bible does say that. That is not a valid excuse to just come up here and go, well, today we're going to preach from Jeremiah 48, 28. That is not an excuse to not put in the work. That is not an excuse to wing it. I watched a video a while back on YouTube um, that other than this sermon illustration, I really wish I hadn't watched. And then I watched it again this week to make sure that I was not imagining it. I also was not going to call out their names, but then I read this scripture, and Paul does it, even though we can't pronounce them. So I'm going to. Okay? T.D. Jakes and Stephen Furtick were sitting on stage at Elevation Church. Furtick is leading the conversation. And he says, we're going to play a game. I'm already out. We're not playing games here. We're at church, but whatever. We're going to play a game. I'm going to read off a song title from the play Hamilton. Nothing wrong with the play Hamilton before anybody gets up for It's fine, okay? I know everybody loves it. But I'm going to give you a song title from the play Hamilton, and I want you to give me your best one-minute sermon title from that it's not song title. This is all spur of the moment. T.D. Jakes had nothing he didn't know. So old Bishop Touchdown sits there for a moment. T.D., Nobody? Yeah. Nobody cares? Okay. Whatever. Sits there for a moment. He rattles off an emphatic, an emotional, a, a pretty, actually pretty good sermon. Uh, it's not bad. I'm sorry, sermon. About G if Jesus is in your room, apparently there's some Hamilton song about a room where it all happens. I don't know. Okay, I don't know anything about Hamilton other than Hamilton. But if Jesus is in your room and everyone else has left your room, and I mean people, woo! Yeah, TD, you tell them. You t yes, yes, they had the rags out. They're slinging them around. They're doing all of this. 
and it is not an African American church. It is Stephen Furtick's church, and they are still all reacting this way. And here's the thing. I actually agree with most of what he said. Because here's the thing. If everyone leaves you, and Jesus is still with you, you are good. That's actually true. Now, I don't, I don't mean good in the same way he meant good. And what I do have a problem with, though, besides the theology of both of these two dudes, which you should look that up if you're a fan of either of them, is that they're treating the Word of God so flippantly. It's a game. We're going to read off a song title that has nothing to do with Jesus whatsoever. As far as I know, the play Hamilton ain't Jesus-related. We're going to read off a song title, and you, man, just perform. Just perform, puppet. Just perform. Give a performance. I can get up here and do that. Eric can definitely get up here and do that after his upbringing in church. He probably has done something similar to that. But we can make it all. So if Jesus has left your room, woo! Hallelujah! You are okay. If Jesus is in your room and no one else is in your room, you stand up and you say, you tell your neighbor that I'm going to be okay. I can get back up. That's a quote-ish from his video. And I mean, everyone went crazy. Everyone. Like, Stephen Furtick himself stood up out of his chair and was like, I knew this would be awesome. Did you, though? All right. Anyway. <laughs> I wonder if that sermon had been preached to the disciples right before his head got chopped off. Hey, man, if Jesus is in your room, you can get back up. Because that was an exact quote. He was talking about the little girl that was raised from the dead. You can get back up. Because he means in life, you can get back up. The disciple would look at him and say, to live is Christ, to die is gain, brother. Chop my head off. It's fine. Or maybe they were thinking Romans 14, 7 through 9. For none of us lives to himself. None of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be the Lord, both of the dead, and of the living. They weren't worried about getting back up in this life. They were worried about proclaiming Jesus to the world. So if Jesus is in your room and no one else is, are you okay? Yes. But that might mean because you're dead. But you're okay because you're Jesus. Because he is the God of the living and the dead. That is what people should be jumping around for. I don't expect that to happen here. Ever. But God's word rightly handled that is what people should jump up with their rags and say, woo-hoo, hallelujah for. But guess which one draws a crowd? You can see which one draws this crowd and which one draws about 10,000 people, I'm guessing. The slow, methodical approach is almost never the fun one or the easy one or the one that gets you out of breath, as I am right now. But it is the one that does make disciples. It's the one that makes true kingdom difference. And I am not saying every person that goes to that church is a non-Christian, because I don't know them. That's not my call to make. But it's the one that allows the Spirit, the slow, methodical approach allows the Spirit to do His work, not us manufacturing an emotion, because we could do it. Not manufacturing an experience, smoke machines, fog machines, lights, nothing wrong with those. If they're used for God's glory, which, never mind. Not manufacturing a response, not manufacturing an emotion, not manufacturing all of these things, but allowing the Spirit to do what the Spirit does through the preaching and the teaching of God's Word. 
people that come here, y'all know, but visitors are probably like, is he ever going to shut up? They preach this long every week? Yes, because we believe this is the most important thing we do on Sunday. Because we preach and teach God's Word. Because why? Because God's Word does something. My words do not. God's words do something. Rightly handling the Word means putting in the labor. We struggle, we sweat, we toil, we are diligent. And then we beg the Holy Spirit to illuminate it to ourselves and to those who hear it. That's genuine growth. We want genuine growth from ourselves. And absolutely, I, don't, I hope we do fill this whole sanctuary up. I hope eventually we have to put the rope farther and farther and farther back till we don't even need it anymore because we have so many people in here. But not for our glory. I want that to be God's glory so we can go, God did this. God did all of this. We didn't wing it. We weren't making it up. Well, we, anyway, we are kind of making it up as we go along sometimes in the church planting aspect. But we didn't make it up. God's Word did what God's Word does. See, just like this sermon, I think I told I don't, somebody, I think it was Todd, this sermon did not come easily to me this week. I don't know why. It's not a difficult text. It's not a debatable text. It's not the, Literally, the only debate is who he's talking to. It's not that difficult, but it did not come easy. Until yesterday, when I got a phone call from our program living house manager. He wouldn't mind if I use his name, but I won't. This dude's been a Christian for less than a year, because he's been there less than a year, and that's where he heard the gospel and believed. Great dude, love this man. But he called me yesterday, not for this, he called me to tell me another one of our residents decided to pack up and leave. This is not like earth-shattering news. I kind of knew the guy was probably going to leave. And he did. So I told him, hey, thanks. If you need anything, just call me back. I said, thanks for all you do, though. I said, and while you're at it, if you could just come finish writing the sermon for me, because it ain't working in my head. It's not coming together. I don't know what I'm trying to say. Dude's been a Christian for less than a year. I need to reiterate that. He goes, you know why, right? He's, he's very point-blank with me, and I'm very point-blank with him. He goes, you know why, don't you? I said, no. He said, you're trying to do too much. And then I hung up on him. Uh, no, I'm <laughs> just kidding. I said, you know what? You're absolutely right. And then I hung up on him. This is handling the word rightly, putting in the work and not trying to do too much. Not trying to make it about me. Not trying to come up with some clever way to tell y'all something or any of those things. Being prepared, but letting the word speak for itself. Making sure that you say the right thing. Yes, you want to answer questions correctly. Don't make up the answers. If you don't know, say I don't know, and then try to find it. Don't just be okay with I don't know. Try to find the answers. But then allow God to do the real work. When we try to conjure this up on our own, we have far too many examples of churches that are doing that in Bowling Green and across the globe. Go to YouTube, you can find them. I can give you the names if you want them. They're trying to manufacture a, an experience and they're drawing a crowd. They got more people than we're ever gonna have, for sure, because we'll split and make a new church out of it. But are they making disciples? I can't, I, I can't say they're not. But when we misapply scriptures, when we rip them from their context, when we moralize them to fit today's culture, when we sift them through a lens that's not the gospel, when we simply avoid scripture that is hard and not accessible, we dilute it to the point that it is something different than what it is intended. William Willimon, William Willimon said, preaching like this reduces salvation to self-esteem, sin to maladjustment, church to group therapy, and Jesus to dear Abby. May it never be true of Mission Church, its pastors, or its people. 
Paul goes on to re reiterate here that loose lips sink ships and that irreverent babble does no, does no good. He compares it to gangrene, which will kill you if you leave it unchecked. Then he names a couple of guys. We'll just refer to them as Furtick and Jakes, but they have swerved from the truth completely. <laughs> they have swerved so far that they are saying the resurrection has already occurred and they don't mean Jesus's. Of course that's already occurred. They are talking about the bodily resurrection that happens when Jesus returns has already happened. That means all the benefits of heaven are now available to us and we are experiencing them. That's what these two guys are saying. Health, wealth, prosperity. Need I say more? Paul does not engage in that battle. He takes his own advice and he simply states the truth that God is in control, that God knows who are his and God will save those who are his. All we need to do is depart from iniquity, flee sin, flee immorality. We hear the word and we do it because God's word says to do that. This book was relevant then. It is relevant now in 2019. We need no one to make it that way. Alistair Begg once preached that the good pastor does not make the Bible relevant. He simply reveals how the Bible is already relevant. This text had a lot of things in it that could have been preached. Maybe they should have been preached. But I do want you to know something. It does not say that we will be unashamed based on our results, based on our crowd size, based on our conversions, our baptisms, our salvations, any of those things, does it? It says we will be unashamed and a good worker by the way we handle the word. We present ourselves to God as one approved with no reason to be ashamed because we know the word, we rightly handle the word, we preach the word, we believe the word, we love the word, we live the word, we breathe the word, we rightly handle the word, we speak this word to the world. We do not worship the word before anybody gets it to us. We don't worship this book. It is still a book. It's just a perfect, inerrant book from God. We worship God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit. This is the book he gave us to make us worship the Lord. But I cannot think of a better way to end than by simply allowing God's word to, to tell us what God's word tells us. So these should be on the screen. Read along with me as I read them. But may we hear them, see them, read them, whatever. May the Lord speak through these words. But may it spur us into action so that we are not just hearers or readers of the word as we read along, but that it spurs us on to be doers of the word, that we would go out and share this good news with the, the world. God's word speaks for itself. So the first one, Hebrews 4, 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Psalm 18.30. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Deuteronomy 11.18-20. through 20. You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you are sitting in your house, 
when you are walking by the way, when you lie down and when you rise, you shall write them on your doorposts of your house and on your gates. Isaiah 40, verse 8 and 55, 11. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. 1 Peter 1, 22-25 Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower fails, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And just when this all gets hard to remember, and we start looking somewhere else for our truth because this can't be true if this is happening. And this can't be true if, if God's allowing this to happen. May we remember that there is truly nowhere else to go for truth and for life. John 6, 60 through 69. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, May this be our answer. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And we remember these words. May this be what is placed on our hearts and our minds like Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy told us to do. May we remember it. May we be hearers of the word and doers. Pray with me.